Amen. Take your seats. Well, good. Good morning, Faith Church. For those of you that don't know who I am, I'm Pastor Brian Almeida. I'm the Outreach and Discipleship Pastor here at Faith Church. And this morning, it's my honor and my privilege to open up the Word of God with all of you and to see what our glorious God has to say to His people from His Word. And this week, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Uh, Most of you probably know that uh, Mike finished up our uh, Advent series in Joel a couple nights ago on Christmas Eve, and he'll pick back up in 1 Samuel uh, next week. So this week, uh, we're doing what we call sort of a standalone sermon, and we're going to be looking at uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And the title of the message this morning is Out with the Old and In with the New. And yes, you may realize that there is some connotation there to the fact that the new year is about to come. Um, But I assure you that that title is not simply because of the time of year. It's because that's what the text is going to say this morning. And it just happens to be timely for us. And it is a time of year where uh, people are thinking about New Year's resolutions. Thinking about what next year is going to look like. And the next season of their life. Hoping that it will be different. And it should not be lost on us. That if there was ever a year that we could not wait to put in our rearview mirror, it was probably 2020. And I'm with you on that. But here's the deal, church. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to burst. Well, actually, I'm not sorry, but I'm going to burst some bubbles here. There's a good chance that you're going to wake up on January 1st and nothing will really have changed except for the calendar. Yet somehow we always feel like that next year or the new season or, or tomorrow or next week or that promotion or the new job or the new move or whatever it is, is going to somehow magically make us a different person. But the reality is that the only way to be permanently made new is through a relationship with Jesus. Not by changing your calendar, not by keeping any New Year's resolutions, but by trusting and believing in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are believers, we know that God has given us new life. And it has nothing to do with a calendar. Yet too often we treat our spiritual lives the same way that we treat the coming and going of a new year, passively. We say that we are new, but there's really no evidence and we just live the same way that we've always lived. And what we're going to see in the scriptures this morning is that as followers of Christ... We are raised with him into a new life and a new identity, and we have died to our old self. But before we go any further, let's humble ourselves and pray and ask God to have his way with us. Heavenly Father, we are here this morning to worship you. We worship you in song and in fellowship and in prayer and in your word. And we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us, particularly through the scriptures. And Father, we ask that this morning you would make your word alive for us, that it would penetrate our hearts and our souls and our minds, that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Make us attentive and responsive this morning. Help us to put away the distractions of life and of the the holidays and everything else going on, Lord. And and we just ask you, we, we plead with you, Lord, to speak from your word through your spirit to your people. We pray this in the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles... Uh, Turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have one, we've got some on the back table. And if you need a Bible, take one of those. It's a gift uh, for you. 
But I'm going to read uh, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I put, or put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. And we're going to look at this in three, based on the structure, we're going to look at essentially three different sections. And first, we're going to start with the first four verses. And I want to focus on verse one. What does it mean to be raised with Christ? If you have been raised with Christ, it's an if-then statement. If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. It could say that since you are raised with Christ, it's a fact. It's something that has already happened. But we need to spend some time here because if we don't understand the foundation of what it, mean, what it means to be raised with Christ, then the rest of this passage and the rest of this message is just going to sound like some legalistic, moralistic, works-based religion or my feeble attempt at encouraging you toward behavior modification. And we're not interested in any of that. So what does it mean to be raised with Christ? That idea of raised with could actually be uh, translated as co-resurrected. I actually like that term, co-resurrected. So what does it mean to be resurrected or raised? What are, the re- uh, what are the prerequisites for that? Well, first of all, you have to die, and then you have to be given a new life. So when we think about death, from an earthly perspective, we often think about that physical death, that we will die one day. And it's scary sometimes because we don't know how or when that's going to happen, And for many of you, it's terrifying because you're unsure of what's going to happen to you after you die. But the fact is that Paul is not talking about a physical death and resurrection here. He's talking about a spiritual death and resurrection. There's a couple other verses we'll look at. In fact, just a couple verses later in verse 3, he says, For you have died. Even though we haven't physically died, yet he's telling us that you have died. Galatians 2.20, a great verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul wasn't actually crucified with Christ physically, but he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. Romans 6, 6, our old self was crucified with him. 
Our old self, our old life has been crucified with Jesus on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, our sins and thus our sinful selves died with him. Amen? But it gets better. Because Paul isn't just talking here about a spiritual death. He's talking about spiritual life. Because he wants the church to know that God doesn't just leave us dead to this world like a bunch of spiritual zombies on earth. He also raises us up and gives us a new and resurrected life. That new life is eternal. And it begins the day that you believe in Jesus for your salvation. On that day, your old life ends and your new life begins. I think it might be helpful here for us to actually look at some verses about the significance of baptism. Colossians 2.12 says that we, having been buried with him in baptism, buried with him, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Romans 6.4 says we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, in order that just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. So when we believed in Jesus Christ, we not only died with him, but we were united with him in his resurrection as well. You were given a new life. And there's actually a double blessing in this for those of us uh, who believe because there's a new life that we get to experience here on earth and there's an even greater life that will be experienced in heaven. And Paul refers to this in verse four when he says that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, Christ already came once. We celebrated that a couple days ago at Christmas. But he will come again one day to rescue his people, those who believe in him and him alone for their salvation. And on that day, we will be made perfect in his presence. But in the meantime, here we are, right, stuck on this earth, living on this earth, right? We're supposed to be dead to our old selves and we're given a new life in Christ, but we live here in these imperfect bodies in a sinful, broken, and corrupt world. And I think that's why Paul gives us further instruction about this. If you look at uh, verse one through three, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, which we just talked about, right? If you've been given a new life, if you believe in Jesus, then seek and set your mind on the things that are above because your life is hidden with Christ who is at the, who is at the right hand of God. When you think of your life as hidden in Christ, don't think of it as something that, that, that you're looking for that you can't find. Not that kind of hiding. Now that might be true for those who are not believers, who have not found Christ. But for the rest of us, Think of our life being hidden in Christ as something secure and safe. I think about uh, my little girls and when they're, when they're nervous or they're scared and they come and they, they cling to my leg and they hide behind their daddy. Or when they get in my arms and they're hiding in the safety and protection of their father. But the reality is that the safety and the security and the protection of God the Father is so much greater than any protection that we could ever give our own kids no matter how hard we try. And when our life is united with Christ, when it is hidden with him in eternity and in heaven, then we focus on things, our mind is set on things that are eternal and heavenly. That's what Paul tells us here. Seek and set your mind on things that are above where your life is. Because God doesn't just give us a new life, he also gives us a new mindset. 
And when you are a Christian, you no longer belong to this world. You become an alien and a stranger to this world. The scripture tells us that a handful of times. And you become a citizen of God's heavenly and eternal place. We become citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20. So imagine if when you became a believer, imagine if you were given an ID card. God gives you an ID card. And just like the ID cards that we have, the, um, probably in your wallet or in your purse, that, that ID card, instead of saying New Mexico or whatever state you have on the top of it, it says heaven. Right? That's your ID card. And, and what does that ID card represent? It represents where your citizenship is at. It represents where your loyalty is to. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand, okay, the, the, the um, imperfections of that loyalty here on earth to an earthly government. But what if? What if your citizenship was to a state or a country that had a perfect ruler and it was in a perfect place with perfect people? Suddenly submitting and obeying and even paying your taxes wouldn't be that hard. In fact, you'd probably be excited to do it. Well, God is our perfect ruler and his kingdom is a perfect place. So instead of being focused on temporary and earthly things, we should be seeking out and, th seeking out and thinking about the things of God who is our king and our Lord. So church, I want to ask you, do you have a new life that is hidden in Christ? And if you're not sure, maybe the evidence is in your mindset. What is your mindset? What consumes your thoughts? Is it the things of this world and this kingdom? Or is it the things of God and his kingdom? Is it the things that are temporary or things that are eternally significant? As you enter the new year, or even if you're just thinking about tomorrow, here's, here's some application for you. What are some steps that you can take or some things that you can do to seek God more earnestly, to set your minds on him? Maybe you need to discipline yourself in prayer. Maybe you want to read the scriptures some more. Maybe you want to enlist some, some partners in account, accountability and some relationships that you want to build. Or what are some ways that you can invest in things that are above? things that are heavenly and eternal. The way, how can you invest your time or your finances in things that have eternal significance? And that mindset, the mindset of having a new life that is hidden in Christ, should be the lens through which we see, really see the rest of the world, but also that we see the rest of this passage and this message as we move on. Because please, please, please don't divorce the rest of what we're about to see from what we just established. Because Paul is about to start telling us about some certain things that we should stop doing and other things that we should start doing. And we want to be very, very careful that we are not preaching or practicing some works-based salvation or some performance-based religion. There is nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven outside of, confessing, outside of confessing Jesus as your Savior and believing that he died for you. So we want to avoid any hint of moralistic or legalistic self-righteousness. But on the other hand, we need to stop being afraid of the fact that the Bible talks about working out our salvation and living a life worthy of our calling. The history of legalism and moralism within the church has almost pushed us so far in the other direction that we have made uh, works and behavior and actions, we've made them dirty words. I think a good section of scripture or a good scripture for us to look at as we begin to transition into these points is actually Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Right? We love 2, 8, 9. Right? It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. 
And rightfully so, we love that verse because it reminds us of the source of our salvation. It's by grace, through faith. It is nothing that we can do. But we can't stop there. What does verse 10 say? We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance or prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, church, we were created to do good works. We don't do them because we're trying to earn salvation or earn the favor of God. We do them because we were created to do them. And on that note, let's look at verses five through eight, which they won't actually talk about, they'll actually talk about the opposite of good works, where we're gonna learn about the death of our old life. And we'll get to the new life in a moment. But here in these four verses of five through eight, we are told three times to put to death put away and put off the earthly and old self. He starts by literally telling us to put to death what is earthly. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, the seriousness, seriousness with which we are being told to deal with our sin? You remember when the Israelites were going into the promised land? What, God, what did God tell them to do with the people and the things of the pagan nations? Destroy them. Deuteronomy 20, 17 and 18 says, you shall devote them to complete destruction as the Lord commanded so that they cannot teach you to do detestable things and cause you to sin against the Lord. And whenever they didn't destroy, things didn't go too well for them. In fact, we saw that just last month in 1 Samuel 15. We are to destroy sin in our lives and the things that cause us to sin. Many of you may be familiar with John Owen in his classic work titled The Mortification of Sin. He said it this way, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. God has no appetite or sympathy or patience for the way that we play around with and justify and make excuses for our sin. Our dabbling and meddling in sin is an insult to God. And if you think I'm exaggerating, you need to read Hebrews chapter 10, particularly verse 29. We need to stop pretending that our sin is no big deal or that it's okay because he'll just forgive us anyways. He tells us to put our sins to death. And these sins, the, the first list here that you see, these sins that he's telling us to put to death, they are sins that represent our heart toward God. Immorality, impurity, misplaced passions and desires, even and particularly misplaced worship and our idolatry. This is why he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. These are the sins that separate us from God. And he tells us to put them to death. And then he tells us to put sins away. And these are, there's another list here, and these are the sins that represent our heart toward others. The other ones, the first ones talked about our heart toward God, and then we see some sins that are our heart towards others. And he says to put these away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talking, lying. And I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna talk a lot about these sins because we're gonna talk in a moment about the contrast to this and what it looks like. But suffice it to say that these represent our old and our sinful life. Let me get back to the seriousness of our sin for a moment. 
I was listening to another sermon on this passage by um, a pastor uh, named Crawford Loritz. You may have heard of him. I know Mike has quoted him before. And he was talking about this passage and the seriousness of our sin and battling against it. And this is what he said, church, and I think this applies to us. You know, a lot of times we talk about how we struggle with sin. I struggle with this, I struggle with that. He said that many of us struggle in our sin because we don't really struggle with our sin. Stop coddling your sin, church. We need to learn to recognize our sin and acknowledge it and call it out and be held accountable for it so that we can eliminate it from our lives. Verse seven of this passage says that in these you once walked when you were living in them, but now put them away. So ask God to show you the sin in your life. And when he does, get on your knees and pray and enlist some brothers or sisters to come alongside you and start doing battle. Kill your sin, put it away. Now I recognize that that's, that's kind of the harsh part of this sermon. Okay, that's kind of the, the, the hard stuff, but there's actually great news in this. Because remember that our resurrected life is not about dying, but it's about what? Living. So perhaps more important than what we are told to get rid of is what God gives us to replace it. And we begin to see this transition take place here in verses 9 and 10. He says, do not lie to one another, which is really a continuation of what he was saying in verse, uh, verse 8. But then he says this, he says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. We see similar language to this in Ephesians 4, where, uh, where Paul said to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted, and put on the new self. In Galatians 3.27, he says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So there's obviously a metaphor here about the putting off and the putting on that's like putting off an old, or taking off an old garment and putting on a new one. Like changing our clothes. And I think that this putting on after we have put off is, is symbolic of a renewal that takes place. Of a renewed life. God gives us a renewed life. And when you take off old, dirty clothes, you put on new or clean clothes, and there's a renewal that takes place. And here in verses 9 through 17, this third section here, we are going to see three different ways that God has renewed us in Christ. You could probably pull out about 27 different ways, but we're going to categorize these in three ways that he has renewed us in Christ. First, we see verses 9 through 11 that he has given us a renewed identity. We've been given a new identity. And one of the reasons that I joined the Marine Corps, one of the perks of joining the Marine Corps when I was 19 was that I got to wear those dress blues, right? And the tradition and the meaning and the identity that came with those. And it's the same for a lot of other organizations or maybe sports teams where uh, you put on that uniform or that jersey and there's, there's additional meaning and tradition and identity that comes with that. Sometimes with our jobs or our schools or our sports, we are giving, given uniforms. Maybe a whole uniform, maybe it's just a certain shirt, or maybe it's just a badge or a name tag that you have to wear. But that badge or name tag or uniform or whatever it is, it helps to identify who you are. But actually more important than that, it identifies who you are affiliated with. 
And it's important to think about because you can't just go out and make your own name tag or just buy a jersey of some sports team and you're all of a sudden on the team, right? Instead, when you are part of the team or the organization, they give you what you need. And in the same way, when we are in Christ, when we are adopted into his family or onto his team, he gives us what we need to put on. It's not this works-based, I'm going to go out and try really hard. He gives us what we need to put on. He says, here, put this on. In a very real sense, what he's saying is, he's saying, why don't you take off those dirty, muddy, sin-stained garments that you're wearing and put on this. And when we don't put that on, when we don't put on what Christ tells us to put on, we're basically saying, no thanks, God, I'm good. I prefer to just stay here in these gross, dirty, smelly, sin-stained, drenched in sweat clothes that I have. And that just doesn't make any sense. Maybe the best analogy for this is actually the armor of God. Right In Ephesians 6, we're told to put on the armor of God in order to go to battle against evil. But if you look at the armor of God, and you look at the things that, are, that the armor of God uh, encompasses, those are things that we've already been given in Christ. And that should be really encouraging. And this is also true of this new garment or this new self that we've been given. Verse 10 says that our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This may have been the most encouraging and enjoyable thing that I, I read and studied during in, in, in these, the weeks leading up to this. This is a beautiful promise. Because we were made in the image of God. But sin, but sin stained and corrupted that. And we've been living with this stained and corrupted image. But God, through the work of Christ, has restored us. And it says right here that, the new life is be, that, that our new life is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. After the image of God. What he's saying is that we were created in his image... And then we messed it all up, and now he's renewing us back into his image. So this new self that we put on is simply the person that we were originally created to be. And that is why Paul can say things like, get rid of these vices and, and, and uh, start doing, you know, practicing these uh, virtues. Not because of some works-based faith, or, um, but, but instead because our faith in our adoption and in our new identity, we are becoming more and more like Jesus. That is our new identity, to be like Jesus, to look like him. He makes this point even more real in verse 11. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised and bar barbarian and Scythian and slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. These were identities. This is how they were previously known, by their nationality or their career or where they were from or their social status or economic status. But the word of God tells us that they are no longer known as those. They're, not, they're no longer known by those titles. They are not being made, we are not being made in the image of some nationality or some socioeconomic status. We're being made in the image of God. We have a renewed identity. So how about you? How does this apply to you? What is your identity? When people ask you, about yourself, how many things do you have to list before you get to the fact that you're a Christian or a Christ follower? 
I would encourage you to spend time in the scriptures with an eye toward the promises of God for his people and remembering that we are his people. And look for the ways that the identity of God's people were manifested, or since they messed it up just like we do, that they were, how they were supposed to be manifested, and pray about ways that you can implement that into your own identity and life. But not only has God renewed our identity, but he is also renewing our character. We'll see this in verses 12 through 15. First of all, in verse 12 here, he says, We are God's chosen people, holy and beloved. He loved us so much that he chose us. He chose us to be holy, to be set apart for him, to become like him. And that includes our character. Our character should reflect that. Our character should reflect the character of God. And I know that sounds like a lofty standard. But remember what we said earlier about our lives being hidden in Christ and thinking and setting our minds on things that are heavenly. Well, what does that look like? Well, look at verses 12 through 15. Look at this list of stuff. I I summarized it here. Listen to these words. Just listen to this. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, harmony, peace, thankfulness. Who does this sound like? Sure doesn't sound like me. And it doesn't sound like you because I know most of you. It sounds like who I want to be. And it sounds like who many of you try to be. But who does that definitively describe? Jesus. That describes Jesus. Those are the attributes and characteristics of God. We aren't being told to try really, really hard to be a different or a better person. We're just being told to put on the attributes and characteristics of the God who has given us this new life, which, by the way, is being renewed in his image. So it makes sense that the God who is renewing us in his image would tell us to put on the character of his image. Has your character been renewed? Does your character reflect Christ? Look at that list. Think about that list and pray. Pray for a heart of compassion and a heart of kindness and a heart of humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love and harmony and peace and thankfulness. And when you see opportunities, put those into practice, even if, and particularly when, your flesh or your old self doesn't feel like it. And then we move on to the last couple of verses here in 16 and 17. And what we'll see is that God has not only given us a new identity and a new character, but we are also given a renewed purpose, a new purpose. Here we are told to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and to do everything in the name of Jesus. First, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And what's the purpose of that? Why do we let the word of Christ dwell in us? The purpose is so we can teach and admonish others. It's right there in the scriptures. We're teaching others about that new life in Christ. We're admonishing and encouraging others in their new life with Christ. And the application is fairly simple. <laughs> Does the word of Christ dwell in you? Do you even give the, give the word of God chan- the chance to dwell in you? Or is your Bible collecting dust? Well, how do you know? And you may ask, oh, I'm, you know, I, I do read my Bible. Are you really, are you reading and studying and meditating on the word of God? And if you want to know if the word of God is actually dwelling in you richly, 
then ask yourself this, do I have a heart for these things? Do I have a heart for teaching and admonishing others and for singing and for thankfulness? I, I have zero musical talent, but I love to sing praises to God, particularly when it's combined with my time in the scriptures. Right? We should have a thankful heart when we read about the things and the works and, and, and the person of God. And then lastly, we are told to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything in word and deed. All these things, all these things that we've been talking about, all this other stuff, we don't do them for our own praise and our own glory or for some pat on the back. We do them to glorify God and to bring him praise. We do them so that when people look at us, they see a reflection of Jesus. They see a new life that reflects Jesus. They see a mindset that is focused on Jesus. They see us fighting and battling against our sin because we want to live for Jesus. They see an identity that is aligned with the character and the purposes of God through Jesus. And we do this when they are watching or when no one is watching because God is always watching. I think of verses 23 and 24, which just wasn't part of this section, but it's just a few verses later. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. What reward are we working for? When our life is hidden in Christ, in heaven, then our mind is set on heavenly things and we seek the blessings and the rewards of heaven, not of earth. And a bonus a bonus is that when you're doing everything in the name of the Lord, particularly the things we've been looking at this morning, it actually affects the whole of your life. It makes you a better husband or a wife or a better father or mother or a better coworker or employee or neighbor or family member. The bottom line here is that we do everything with the purpose of giving thanks and glory to God. Can you say this about yourself? Whose glory do you seek? So when you're making a decision or when you're making your New Year's resolutions in a couple days or when you're talking to somebody or when you're carrying out a task at work or whatever it is you're doing, who is getting the glory? So as you seek to make your New Year's resolutions for this year, and maybe you're not going to do those because I don't really care about New Year's resolutions or if you're making them. I don't normally make any. Okay, but you get the point, right? Whether you're making New Year's resolutions or whether you're just thinking about uh, your life, thinking about something you want to try or do or implement in your own life, I've got some questions I think you need to ask yourself. First, have I been made new with Christ? Have you been made new? Does that decision or does that thing you're going to do, does it reflect your new life in Christ? Have you been made new? Do you believe in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, that he is the way and the truth and the life and the only way to the Father in heaven? If you don't, if the answer to that question is no, you should remedy that today. Come talk to one of the pastors or one of the elders or the person that you came with. We'd be happy to talk to you some more. Second, ask yourself this. Does this reflect a mindset that is focused on eternity? Or, do, or is it um, 
you know, contrary to that, or is it focused on something that's earthly? Another way to ask this question is, um, what, where are your treasures? Where are your treasures at? Third, does this enable any sin in my life, or does it help me fight against it? Is this thing going to cause or tempt me to sin, or is it going to help me to put away my old self? And then number four, will this reflect the identity, the character, and the purpose that I have been given in Christ? And I want to end uh, with, with a story about my own life. Right? So many of you know that our, our two little girls are adopted. Um, Avalyn and Eloise, they're three and one, and they are adopted. And they didn't do anything to earn it. Now, we brought them home from the hospital, so our story's a little bit different. It's not like we went to an orphanage or we had, you know, we, we brought them home as newborns. But we didn't show up and ask them to say the right things or do the right things so that we could, and be, okay, well, they're good enough. We'll take them. That's not how that worked. We chose them and we loved them and we brought them home and we gave them a family and we gave them an identity and we gave them a new name and we gave them a new life. And as part of our family, we are teaching them. We're teaching them to avoid certain things and we're teaching them to do certain things and not because we want them to do those things to be accepted into our family, but because we love them as part of our family. We're doing it because we love them and we wanna protect them and nurture them and care for them. And that's what God is doing for us. He chooses us and loves us and he saves us and then he begins to teach us and admonish, admonish us. He's not asking us to earn his love. He's asking us to live abundantly and faithfully in the new life that he has already given us. He paid for that life and he wants us to live it well and in a manner that reflects and honors and brings glory to who he is and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you deeply for the new life that has been given to us in you. Thank you for giving us new life. Thank you that through the death and resurrection of your son that we too can die to our old selves and be raised into a new life. So Father, help us. Help us to navigate and to walk faithfully in this new life during this time here on, on earth in the midst of this broken and sinful world. Help us to do so with a, a great and a wonderful hope that anticipates the perfection of the new life when we are with you in glory forever. And God, we submit ourselves to you. We submit our hearts and our minds to you. May our minds be set and focused on you and the things that glorify your name. Help us to embrace our new identity in a manner that reflects your character and your purposes as we seek to put away our old earthly selves and put on our new heaven-bound selves. May we walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling in order to bring you praise and glory and worship. It's in the name of your perfect and risen son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.